Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And we're continuing our journey this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, looking at verses 1 through 9. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 10. And then there is a children's version on page 11. You're also welcome to, of course, use your own smartphones or turn there in your own Bibles. And if you'd like to use the chair Bible there in front of you, it's found on page 522. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one there as our gift to you. So as you're turning there, I kind of want to start out with a, a statement that I bet many of us have found ourselves making. And it's this, just tell me what you want me to do. How many of you have found yourself, you have to raise your hand, but you, you, you've been there, right? <laughs> enough broad themes, enough hints, enough passive aggressive innuendos. Just give me the list of action steps. I'll do it. Make it practical so I understand. And that's right where we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. This, this pastor philosopher, has, he's written and he has diagnosed that we need wisdom. And he's finally going to give us some specifics. All right, tell me what to do. He spent six chapters experimenting with ways to cope with all the various junk in life. And he, he looked at the ways to cope with education or with pleasure or with religiosity. And now this pastor philosopher, he has analyzed all that data he collected in chapter 7. And he makes the case that wisdom, living in a relationship with the Creator, is the key. It provides the real resources for living under the sun, which is a phrase he uses to describe this messed up, broken world full of broken people like us. He says this world is vanity is the famous word, if you're familiar with this. It's, we would translate it today perhaps better as frustration or meaningless or vaporous. You try to grab onto it and you can't. He ended last chapter saying that maybe only one in a thousand have such wisdom. And so now he's going to show us in this chapter what it looks like for that rare person to live and walk in wisdom in the real world. So that gets us to our text today. So please turn with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise in heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt." Now, this is God's Word. Let's pray together. How gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us in speech. And so we ask, Lord, that as we come to Your Word now, that You would give us truth, Lord, for our growth and for our transformation. Help us to understand You and to understand ourselves. 
We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what we're going to see in this text today is, is simply this, that wisdom changes us into obedient servants who avoid evil, but it also reminds us that we are powerless over God's troubles, or life's troubles, excuse me. That gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When life under the sun stings, wisdom keeps us secure and peaceful. In other words, in a world of hurt, wisdom changes us by making us safely submissive and peacefully powerful. So I want to jump right in to see how wisdom changes us. I want to start at the end, actually, in verse 9, because he sums up the book thus far. He tells us in verse 9, basically, this is what I learned back then when I gave my heart to all those different ways to cope under the sun. All the stuff. What did I learn? I learned this. People use authority and power to hurt others. That's what happens under the sun, he says. And so we need wisdom to navigate this treacherous world full of hurtful people. Now, in the Bible, wisdom is not something we attain. It's not something we gain. It's not something we achieve. Wisdom comes from an encounter with grace. We would say when our life has a collision with the gospel, one of the benefits we get is wisdom. He shows us this benefit in the second part there, verse 1. Look with me at verse 1. He says there that a man's wisdom makes his face shine. The hardness of his face is changed. We could, we could also translate that as the power of his presence will be changed. See, wisdom changes a person from using power to hurt others, like verse 9, into being someone who doesn't do that. And we desperately need that because if you were here, if you remember back in chapter 7, verse 20, he reminded us that everybody and everything is messed up. We need God's wisdom, the security that we find in grace to change us so we can live and work in that frustrating world. That wisdom is practical life skills and maturity. So this is not, oh, well, Christians shouldn't feel stressed. Put on a happy face. No, that's, that's not wisdom. Wisdom is resting in the gospel, living in the wisdom of God. It actually lightens your burden under the sun. Our frustrating world becomes less grating on your soul in biblical wisdom. I'll give you an example of this. So I didn't make a big deal out of it. I know lots of people do make big deals. I, I, I felt convicted about a year and a half, a little over a year ago, to kind of have, we'll, we'll call it a diet on social media. I didn't announce it, didn't make a big deal. I just, I just made a commitment. I am not going to check Facebook every day, two or three times a week. That's it. I stopped perusing all the blogs. I deleted Twitter. And within a week, I was happier, less anxious, less angry. I wasn't trying to be. It was great. I'm glad I had that. I no longer thought the sky was falling in our denomination or in our country. My face began to shine. My hardness was changed. And I'm, I, I, that's what he's talking about here. That kind of wisdom comes. And if, if you're still looking into Christianity, everything I just said kind of sounds like a religious platitude, doesn't it? So I want to give you a tangible example from another culture and an unexpected source about what he's talking about here in Ecclesiastes 8, these practical benefits of, of employing God's wisdom. So Matthew Paris is a, is a journalist. He was raised in Africa, and he wrote an article several years ago called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. 
Now, he's unapologetically an atheist, but as he traveled back to Malawi where he was raised, over and over again, he kept encountering tangible benefits of Christianity that, it, that were showing itself in the everyday lives of people. He goes on to say this in his article. He said, in the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. See, the grace that comes to us in the gospel helps us live in a messed up world. It gives us gravitas for dealing with all the junk and superficially out there. And so to help us see that, to help us see exactly how that works, this pastor philosopher, he wants to use our relationship to government or big institutions as an example. But we can insert here any sort of relationship where we are under the authority of someone or somebody or something else. So let's jump right in here. So we see in verses two through five that wisdom makes us safe from harm. It keeps us, we'll call, securely submissive. Look with me at verse two. He tells us right away, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. It's actually the word for mouth, keep the king's mouth. So whatever the king says, do it. And that weird phrase, because of God's oath for them, it's, am, it's ambiguous. Does this mean God's oath to you as the keeper of the command, or does this mean God's oath to the king as the established ruler? And a good rule of thumb is when you're reading through Scripture and you come across something like this that's ambiguous, it's kind of meant for you to kind of grab a little bit from both. That's how he did it for the kids' version, is that it's God's promise to you and it's God's promise to the king himself. See, the rest of the Bible teaches us that God created authority structures, even those under the sun, even those in this messed up world, teachers, parents, bosses, presidents, district managers, whoever it is. And he tells us that rebelling against those in authority actually shows a mistrust in God. And here's why that's so hard, because we don't like to submit, do we? I remember several years ago, I was walking into a Walmart. I think it was up in Massachusetts. It was a bright, sunny day. And I was in the very act of removing my sunglasses. My hands were raising up. And as I walked by the greeter, she goes, welcome to Walmart. Remove those glasses, please. And I just stopped. And just instantly, my sinful, unsubmissive heart just determined, those glasses will rot off my head before I take them off now. <laughs> Why? Because I didn't want to be told what to do. Can you imagine? How dare she? It's almost as bad as telling me to wear a mask or something, man. Goodness. Yeah, that one's a little awkward. Not as funny, huh? Anyway, so, right. So you're put in a position, right, where your boss is a jerk and you don't like the job. Verse 2 says, wisdom means do a good job anyway because God's grace changes you. And now you live as his empowered representative. That's practical wisdom in a difficult situation. See, not only are we to submit to authority, he tells us, in the next verse, he actually tells us to remain there as long as possible. Look with me at verse three. It says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. See, he tells us here practically, wisdom stays at its post, attempting to sway an arrogant ruler until remaining so would be confirming 
evil. Isn't this so practical? There's wisdom right there. It doesn't say, do your duty no matter what. Stay at your post. Even when the ruler's wrong. You know your position. No. There's an out here for evil. Submissiveness to wisdom gives us the security to know when we can walk away and when we should stay because wisdom helps us see. We don't submit because of the ruler's sake. We submit, verse 2, because of God's sake. So he tells us, look, don't be quick to abandon your position, to abandon your responsibilities, but don't stubbornly stay too long either when things are evil. The boss man's going to do what he's going to do with or without you. See, does our faith give us this kind of robust, wise, staying power in difficulties? Or have we bought into the very popular lie that God wants you to be happy? So when life gets hard, he must not want you to be there. So we can bail on our commitments for Jesus somehow. See, wisdom comes in and says, no, that's not how it works. Wisdom comes in and changes us and helps us see, no, by God's grace, we now have a principled loyalty for God's glory. Wisdom gives us, I'll say it again, a principled loyalty for God's glory, even to an unpredictable authority with whom we may disagree. Government, bosses, whatever. You stay. You make your case. You try to convince of the good. But verse 4 does tell us eventually they're going to do what they're going to do. So you stop making your case. And you recognize in wisdom, it's time for me to decide who am I going to submit to. There's a great uh, a story captures this really well. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, the second book is called Prince Caspian. And if you've seen the movie, you know, you know nothing about this. You, you have, so you need to read the book because there are two totally different things. Anyway, enough of that. So in Prince Caspian, you have this boy king named Caspian, and there's this older, much older advisor named Trumpkin, and they are at a disagreement about what this plan should be. And eventually, finally, King Caspian pulls rank and says, this is what we're going to do. And there's this key component to this plan. There's this vital aspect to this plan. And so Trumpkin, who argued vociferously against it, volunteers for the key position. And Caspian's like, whoa, whoa, how can you, how can you volunteer for the main part when you're against it so bad? And, and I can't imagine that C.S. Lewis, who was our brother in Christ, does not have this passage in the background when he has Trumpkin say this. He says, you are my king. I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. You've had my advice. Now it's time for your orders. That's exactly what verse 4 instructs us to have. That kind of wisdom that argues vociferously. But then it's like, you know what? I'm called to submit to you. It's not evil. I'm your guy. Let's do it. Did you know the Bible is this practical? Did you have any idea the Bible is actually this practical? Real life can help you on a Monday morning. What do you do when you get the HR menu, memo? Right there. See, that's one of the benefits of the gospel. The gospel really does give you a better life here and now. And we're afraid to say that because it sounds like I'm saying, well, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that gospel wisdom gives you real life benefits that just give you a better life. You don't fall into as much foolishness, which is how most of our problems come is from our own foolishness. So much so, verse 5 then comes and includes a promise of security. For those who exercise this principled loyalty for God's glory. Let's look at the boys and girls translation of verse 5. Okay, boys and girls still in here. It's on page 11, about halfway down. It says this. It says, when you obey God, you will not do evil. 
the wise just know what to do and when to do it. That almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? We're not going to do any evil. We'll just know what to do. I never know what to do. How do I get this wisdom, right? Well, let's look at the real thing. Verse 5 in the ESV says this, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. It's actually not the word command there. It's the word commandment. And that, here's why that's important. Because back, this is different from verse 2. Remember in verse 2 it says, keep the king's command. It's actually the word for mouth. Here, this is the word for commandment, which is almost universally used in the Old Testament for referring to something God says. So we have the king's command in verse 2, but the God's commandment in verse 5 as to what we're supposed to follow. In other words, what's the big deal about that? You don't have to wait for the New Testament for Acts chapter 5 to get the famous sentence, we must obey God rather than men. It's right here in Ecclesiastes 8. We keep God's commandments first, and under that, then we keep the commands of rulers. In wisdom, we obey God, and therefore we avoid evil. Imagine the confidence and freedom we would have if we actually believe that, if we actually believe that walking in God's commands in wisdom would give us the ability to know when to stay, when to stand for truth, when to walk away, when to obey, imagine if we actually believe that. Because see, the promise is that in the gospel, you're brought into God's family, you're given the Holy Spirit, and in Him, you're given wisdom, resources to live and to work. The promise of verse 1, our faces can shine with joy because we know our true King's on the throne, ruling His universe, upholding all things, and so we're able to deal with petty authorities. And God promises in our dealing with petty authorities, He'll be with us. So we can submit to them, critique them, participate in the system, and walk away all in confidence that God has promised he'll not let us stumble into evil. Now, do we live in that kind of confidence and joy? See, God's word says that if we are living in his grace, his wisdom will give us a clear joy as we participate as we submit to rulers, as we lobby hard for change, as we obey God, that's wisdom. See, and anchored in the gospel, we can do that. Because when life under the sun stings, wisdom keeps us secure and peaceful. And we see in the next section of verses here that wisdom then reminds us that we are also powerless. For the last seven chapters, he's been talking about how frustrating life under the sun is, how it's vaporous, how you can't get your hands on it. And those issues with life, they don't go away with wisdom. Notice what he tells us. Look with me at verse 6. He says, There is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy upon him. Isn't that a beautiful description? Our trouble lies heavy on us. Life under the sun is trouble. It's actually the word here for evil. The ESV wanted to kind of ease it up, the impact a little bit. It's the same word used throughout this passage for evil. It says, our evil, man's evil lies heavy upon him. You know, this is primarily at this point written to those inside the community of God. So let's think about what that means for us. You know, there's a pressure in church world, isn't there, that you're not supposed to have troubles. I mean, yeah, we do the prayer requests and stuff, but deep down, there's this kind of default setting so often that if we have Jesus, we're not supposed to have troubles. 
It goes back to what he's been critiquing the last couple chapters is that there so often we think in foolishness that we determine God's love for us by looking at the circumstances of our life. And so if things aren't going well, it must be because we're on probation a little bit, right? God gave me my HR review overnight and it's not doing so well. So I get some troubles today. I got to shape up. But remember what he showed us last week, how we saw that, no, God loves us as much as we are in Jesus, not as much as we're like Jesus. See, obeying God keeps us from evil is the promise, but we still have trouble in our life. We're still going to encounter some evil. Wisdom doesn't give us perfect judgment, and even though there is a wise path, we still will experience evil. We still will experience trials. Why? Well, he tells us we don't know what's going to come next. See, in verse 6, we have the promise that there is a plan and a time for everything, but then the next verse, we don't know how or will it will work out, and we desperately want to understand all the trouble and all the evil in the world. In fact, I would say it, it seems like our inability to know all the answers is a key source to our frustration under the sun, isn't it? So many of us, we don't live in the promised joy that we have because we're control freaks. We want to know why. You ever thought about this? When something really bad happens, so often our first response is not how to fix. Our first response is why did it happen? We gotta know. Remember Nancy Kerrigan? Okay, for those of you who are like, you know, younger, you, you probably had maybe older people. Nancy Kerrigan, remember her? 1994, famous skating, uh, figure skating, going to be a champion, definitely on her way, having a gold medal. She's coming off the ice at the World Championships in 1994. She goes, it's live on TV. She goes right behind the curtain, and out of nowhere, this guy jumps out and smashes her knee with a police baton and runs off. And, she, and, and, the, and if you've seen the footage, you, you hear her screaming. The cameraman is right there in the aftermath. He misses the actual assault, but he gets the aftermath. She's on the ground, and she's screaming. You remember what she's screaming? Why? Why? Why me? Why now? Why? Because we want to know why. Man, if you've had something really powerful, painful in your life, you cry that out, don't you? Between your sobs and your pillow at night, why? Because we have to know. But verse 7 reminds us we won't. It says you're not going to know. But right as we get to that source of frustrations, he also gives us a hint, because look at the second part of verse 7 there. Look at that second half of verse 7. He says, what? For he does not know be, and then, but for who can tell him how it will be? We don't know, but there's someone out there maybe. Is there someone? See, the question kind of assumes there's no help inside humanity. Maybe there's somebody outside who can help us. That's why it's a hint of good news. Maybe someone knows and can tell us the why. Now, if you've been tracking with me, if you've actually been paying attention, especially if you're not a church person, verses 2 through 5 can sound a lot like social control, can't they? Karl Marx's famous observation, religion is, is the opiate of the masses, sounds a lot like verses 2 through 5. Control people by telling them, well, don't rebel because God doesn't want you to. The spiritual world says be a good little citizen no matter how bad the ruler is. And don't question the system. But we see here, no, Carl, God wants us to question the system. It validates in verse 7 that we don't know and we need help. It validates our frustrating quest to understand the why of our troubles. Who can tell us why? 
It doesn't say don't ask why. It says ask, but ask the right person. See, Ecclesiastes sort of sets itself up as it's the book that asks the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. And its big question at this point is who can tell us how it will be in this frustrating, broken world under the sun? And the rest of the Bible introduces us to this remarkable person named Jesus. It says he's God in the flesh. It even goes so far to say that he is the answer. Hebrews chapter 1 actually goes so far as to specifically say that everything God wanted to say, he said fully in the person of Jesus. See, when we place our faith and trust in that Jesus as the resurrected Lord, the Bible tells us that we get the Holy Spirit, which is also called the Spirit of Wisdom, the same source of wisdom that Jesus Christ himself had. Our gracious God doesn't hoard wisdom for himself. The same Spirit he poured out on his beloved Son, he pours out on those who are in his Son by faith. The church gets wisdom in Jesus And that wisdom helps us to deal with life under the sun because it's the same resource that Jesus had to deal with life under the sun. And it's in submitting to that Jesus as Lord that we get the wisdom for life under the sun. Now we desperately need that practical wisdom because as verse 8 goes on to remind us, we are powerless. Look at verse 8. It says, No person has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. What's he say here? He says, look, you can't master life. You can't restrict death. You can't avoid avoid war, nor can you look to evil to save you. Specifically meaning all those evil coping mechanisms from chapters 1 through 6, all that wickedness he tried out, it won't save you. So added to our ignorance in verse 7 is our utter powerlessness in verse 8. Great, thanks, encouraging text. He says, look, not only do you not know when you'll die, you couldn't do anything about it if you did. You live under that powerlessness and mystery. See, he brings us to this point because death is the ultimate assault on our determination to do life without God, to be independent of him. In fact, that's what life under the sun is, living as if we are independent of God. That's actually also the biblical definition of frustration, of of foolishness, excuse me, of choosing to ignore the God you know is there. See, our supposed independence is utterly defeated by death. See, the emphasis of this passage is that we are uncomfortable with things outside of our control. And verse 8 reminds us, um, it's all outside of our control. And that's our frustration We don't want to believe that. We want to deny that. Even those of us in the room who have experienced God's grace in the gospel, the junk of life remains for us, doesn't it? Wisdom doesn't make all that stuff go away, but wisdom gives us the resources to deal. We can endure the foolishness out here by God's grace. I know that sounds like a very religious platitude, doesn't it? But it's deeper than that because there is one who did no death, and who did stop death. Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, if you're familiar with his story, says repeatedly to his followers, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. In fact, two or three different times, he actually says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm gonna be put on a sham of a trial, they're gonna crucify me, and I'm gonna raise from the dead. And all his disciples are like, huh? 
It's crazy. The very night before he was arrested, after having gone into Jerusalem, he begged his father in prayer, please don't let it happen this way. Is there another way? Jesus knew the time, he knew the manner of his death, and he walked right into that for us. And as an innocent man who didn't deserve to die, the the Bible says literally the grave could not hold on to him, so he burst forth on that third day, destroying the power of death in his resurrection. See, and now we Christians who are united to Jesus by faith, we have the power that we didn't have before. Death, while still sad and still a time for mourning, is no longer an assault on our independence. The Bible says the sting of death is taken away by the gospel. It no longer lords over us and defeats us. That is the ultimate victory that the wisdom of God gives us. The same gospel that defeated death defeats the other mysteries of life that lord over us. And we can grasp onto that wisdom by living in the reality of the gospel in which we stand. See, this passage tells God's people, those in the community of faith, that living in His grace daily gives you practical resources for dealing with the real world. I want to take a stab at applying this passage practically then. Let's take it to heart. Because gospel wisdom helps us own a reality that we don't like to own. That we live in a different America. Folly tries to ignore it, acts as if nothing has changed, but wisdom embraces that change. I want to introduce you to an uh, internet comic named Adam Ford. He, you may not have heard of him. He stopped doing internet comics a while ago, but he started this little bitty project blog that became known as the Babylon Bee. Uh, If you're familiar with that, you appreciate it. If you're not familiar with it, you will appreciate it. You can look that up. And he has this comic about Christianity in America. Here's what he says. Look with me. So I I don't know if you can read this. I'll just read it to you. So we got these two friends walking along. Notice the banner says America for the past few hundred years. And it says, he goes, you know, I feel like we're at the end of an era in our country. Doesn't it seem like that? I mean, for so long, Christianity was considered a good thing for our society. Okay, next. Yeah. Christians were generally liked. The Bible was considered a good book. Christian morals were considered standard. Christianity was kind of the norm. That's all changing now, and it's happening so quickly. It's not considered a positive thing to be a Christian anymore from culture's point of view. It's so different. It's so weird. And his other friend goes, different? Yes. Weird? No. We're leaving weird, and we're headed towards normal. And notice what the banner says. Most of the world since the early church. Welcome. We don't like you. (laughs) That's church history. Throughout church history, except for this historical blip that we have enjoyed, it's been, oh, you're a Christian. We get to kill them, right? Come on in. And we're starting to be more and more hostile territory as Christians. And we don't like it. I don't like it either. We try to ignore it. We try to vote it away. We try to dream of the old days, and none of that is wisdom. Jesus himself tells us this truth. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He said, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Jesus unapologetically calls the world system under the sun wolves, and he calls us sheep. He sends us out to do ministry in that hostile territory. And we need wisdom 
Because in the world under the sun where foolishness reigns, what do we encounter? We encounter a world that has no real foundation for any values. We're all on our own. There's no big picture to help us out we can appeal to. All morals, what used to be called morals, are defined by individuals, and so we have no real solidarity in our communities. It leaves us all feeling very isolated, very alone, and it makes us all, what, insecure, intolerant of challenges to our beliefs. I mean, look at any issue. Voices of opposition are no longer engaged and debated with. They're no longer seen to be those with a different opinion. No, we assume that we, or anybody, whatever the position is, assumes that they have the moral high ground, and so anybody who disagrees with you is not wrong. They're evil. And what do you do with evil people? You silence them. You run them out of business. You cancel them. Wisdom, on the other hand, as we saw in verses two through five, says, I will stay, I will engage, I will live, and I will serve in community, even submitting to people and systems I don't agree with for God's glory and to make this world better. Don't you want wisdom like that? And don't you want a culture that has wisdom like that? Oh, Christians in the room, is this the wisdom we're known for? Do we stay in hard places and do hard things? Or do we, in wisdom, do we really live as sheep among wolves? Or do we barricade ourselves up with our own kind and look at the wolves as adversaries and fear them? See, gospel wisdom gives us both the courage and just as importantly, the desire to be out among people not like us in the hope that maybe one day they could become part of us. Oh, I hope that describes your Christian life. And if it doesn't, perhaps you should spend some time with Ecclesiastes 8 and the Holy Spirit this week. And for non-Christians here in the room, this is the dream that Jesus has for his family. That just as Jesus used his power to make others safe, secure, and joyful, he sends his family out with that same power to spread his same message of gospel wisdom. That's the grace available to you in the gospel. See, the gospel gives you the resources, the wisdom to be the loving, supportive, strong, sacrificing person you wish you were, but often find you can't be. But in Jesus, you can be. Do you want that? If so, then embrace Jesus as he's offered to you in the gospel. Repent of your sins and confess Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for tough texts like this that are tedious and hard to work through and challenging to us, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would give us this wisdom. We pray, Lord, that we would be those whose face shine in the troubles of this world because in your wisdom you've lightened our load. We pray, Lord, that you would use us, Father, to spread your kingdom, to overcome the foolishness out there. And we ask, Lord, that as those here today who don't know you, that they would have heard your gospel call to repentance and that you would give them faith that they might walk a new life. We pray, Lord, now you would even purify and build your church. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.